That was awesome, wasn't it? Man, a wondrous day when I will see the face of him who ransomed me. I'll fall and worship at his feet and rise to reign eternally in a grace so glorious. That, it's that reality and that image of eternity and, and of the future that ought to just bring us uh, to our knees in worship of Christ who gave all to make that possible. Um, we can only go downhill from there, so I apologize for the next 25 minutes of your life. Um, There's a little boy, and he, he's sitting in Sunday school class. And the teacher up at the front of the class is working really hard to try to get one of the students uh, in the group there to guess what it is that she's describing. And, and she's saying, uh, lives outside and spends a lot of its time in a tree, and it can be brown or gray, and a, it's got a bushy tail and collects acorns, and sometimes it buries them in the ground. And, and the little boy finally feels pretty confident, so he raises his hand. And the Sunday school teacher calls on him and he says, well, I think you're describing a squirrel, but because we're at church, I'm going to say that the answer is Jesus. <laughs> as trite as that sounds and as simplistic as that is, what we're going to see today as we continue our way forward in the Sermon on the Mount is that uh, the answer is Jesus. When I was uh, at a, a, in a youth pastor position at a previous church, every once in a while I'd have to fill in like on Sunday mornings and, and lead this group of like eighth grade boys. Their leader traveled a lot. And so when he was out of town, I would step in and, and kind of cover his group. And they had this thing that they loved to do where when you asked them a question, they just rattled off you know, every list of sins that they could in their eighth grade minds. Drugs, sex, money, rock and roll. <laughs> and then the longer you stared at them, one, one boy would always say the same thing. He would say, but it's okay because Jesus. And then it was like, well, I guess the group's over because he's got it figured out. Um, this morning, we're going to see that the answer really is, it, it really is Jesus. And that's not just something that we give on Sunday mornings when we're uh, at church or something that we just say because we think that it sounds good or that it should just cover everything and, and there's no defense to it. it. It really is the answer. And we're going, to, we're going to see this in Matthew 5, 17 to 20. So if you've got a Bible and you want to flip open to there, uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. And, and this passage marks kind of the first shift in our series. We're kind of turning the first corner. I said that things are going to move in four chunks. And the first one we covered was Matthew 5, verses 1 through 16, where Jesus really clearly lays out what the, the heart of a disciple looks like, what their nature is. And he sits down on this mountain, which was really more of a hill, to teach, and his 12 disciples come to him, and there's this large crowd that would have been kind of in the peripheral, if you will, listening to what Jesus has to say, and he rolls through the Beatitudes, which describe the the heart condition of a follower of Christ. And then he uh, proceeds to say that if you are one of these followers whose heart is like this, then you are salt and you are light in a dark and in a broken world that so desperately needs uh, the hope of Jesus. 
and from there, we're going to kind of turn a corner because Jesus is going to spend the rest of chapter 5 describing the character of a disciple. And uh, he, he leads that off with this four-verse chunk. And I'll, I'll be totally honest and upfront with you in that these are not the four most exciting verses in the entirety of the Bible. They're just not. And the temptation would have been to have skipped them and moved on to the passages that come after this, but we, we can't because everything that comes after this in chapter 5, uh, in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, flows out of these four verses. We cannot hope to rightly or correctly understand the rest of chapter 5 if we don't have a good grasp on this four-verse section. Um, in fact, it's foundational for all that uh, Jesus teaches and, and speaks and commands throughout the rest of his ministry. So we've got to get our heads and our hearts and uh, our hands kind of wrapped around this firmly. And it flows directly out of what we looked at in the first 16 verses, and it rolls directly into what will be uh, like the last 28 verses of chapter 5. An image, if you want to just kind of picture this, these verses are kind of like the pipes that connect the water tower in town to your faucet at home. You can't see them. You don't think about them. you, You don't often consider them at all, but they make it possible for water to flow out of your sink. They're necessary and indispensable, and we've got to know them and understand them, so we're going to dive into them this morning. Here it is. I'm going to start in Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We're going to look at three issues that bubble to the surface out of this passage. And there are three things that are still incredibly pertinent to the church today. Um... There are three things that, if we don't have a firm grasp on, I think can lead us to read much of the Bible incorrectly and therefore to apply it to our lives incorrectly. So we, we need to establish a little bit what's going on in this, in this passage. The three things are this, lawlessness, legalism, and righteousness. We're going to start by looking at lawlessness and There's a a big kind of fancy theological term that describes this in today's world, and it is called, the word is antinomianism. Uh, I elected to use the word lawlessness because antinomianism is hard to say repeatedly, but lawlessness is not much easier. Uh, Antinomianism literally means opponent of the law. Opponent, antinomia, or noma, the law. Opponent of the law. Lawlessness is this false belief that followers of Jesus can live however they want. That because the grace and mercy of Christ has been shown to humanity through his work on the cross, there there is no reason to think about how you live. All grace, no law. Everything's forgiven, live however you want. No need for sanctification, no need to pay attention to the commands of the Old Testament or the New Testament or the things that Jesus says. They just don't matter anymore. 
In fact, this issue of lawlessness is one of the, the most common criticisms that faithful religious people, scribes, Pharisees, rabbis, are going to level against Christ throughout his ministry. That, that Jesus has come to tell people that the, the Old Testament laws just don't matter anymore. And you can throw them out. And so right off the bat here, after describing the character of a disciple, Jesus addresses this question. And he says, no, I I haven't come to abolish the law. In fact, everything I'm teaching is fully congruent with all of the laws in the Old Testament. Testament. There is absolute harmony. In fact, the Old Testament law finds its fulfillment in me, says Jesus. When Jesus talks about the law and the prophets here in verse 17... He is uh, using those two words to lump together all of the Old Testament. Prophets, prophecy being the things that are spoken about uh, Christ and, and what was to come and a Messiah in the future. And the law summing up basically three pieces of the Old Testament. The most common thing we think about when we think about Old Testament law are the do's and the don'ts. Like the moral laws that you would find in say the Ten Commandments. That's just one component, though, because there's also a a lengthy chunk of the Old Testament that's what's called the judicial law, which basically regulated how it was that that Israelite people, Jewish people, were supposed to live in relation to one another. For instance, if your neighbor's goat wanders onto your property and falls in a hole, what are you supposed to do? There's a law for that. You can read about it in Leviticus. It's thrilling (laughs) and easily applicable to us today. That's the judicial law. And then the last is the ceremonial law, which was everything that had to do with the temple and sacrifices and the rituals that were concerned with holiness and what was needed to, uh, to make restitution for the sin that you had committed. Moral law, judicial law, ceremonial law. When Jesus is speaking about the law and the prophets, he's lumping all of those things together to talk about the Old Testament as a whole. And he says, I have come to fulfill that. It's really important to note that when Jesus is born and he becomes humanity and he puts on flesh and he steps out of heaven and he's, he's born in the manger, that he's subjecting himself to the law like any other human being. Last night I was, I was watching the University of Kansas, University of Kentucky basketball game. And they did this halftime ceremony because some wealthy individual within the University of Kansas community had purchased the original written rules to basketball. And he was bringing them back to the university to like their rightful place, you know? And I kept thinking that James Naismith is a lot like Jesus. Kind of. In that, (laughs) minus the Kansas part. But he... I'm really sorry if you're a Kansas fan. I told myself I wasn't going to do that. But if James Naismith had not just written the rules to basketball, but had actually laced up his shoes and stepped out onto the court to play, he would have been subject to the very rules that he had written. Just because he's the creator doesn't mean that he could step onto the court and then not follow what he had put in place that was supposed to govern the game of basketball. The same is true when Jesus steps out of heaven. When he becomes human and he puts on flesh, he has become subject to the very laws that as part of the Godhead, he instituted for the Israelite people. 
When he is human, he, he must follow them. And to go one step further, if in fact he's going to fulfill them, like he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, then he's not only got to follow them, he's got to follow them perfectly. It's incumbent upon him to do that. In fact, had he not followed them perfectly, moral, judicial, ceremonial, his work on the cross would be meaningless for us today. It would be meaningless. Though eternally kind of above the law as its creator, as part of the Trinity, the Godhead, when he becomes human, he's fully submitted to, he's fully subjected to the law. And he fulfilled every piece of it. Every moral do and don't. Every here's how you should interact with the rest of the people who are around you. Every sacrifice in the Old Testament, he fulfills all of those. In fact, all of those ceremonial laws and the sacrifices were shadows pointing to the work that he would do on the cross. And when he hangs there for the sin of all humanity, having fulfilled all the moral and the judicial law, his sacrifice overrides everything written about sacrifice in the Old Testament. And he says that there's not one iota, not one dot, not the smallest stroke or the smallest letter is going to disappear or pass away from the law until everything has been accomplished. And that's an interesting statement because what happens when everything has been accomplished? At this point in Jesus's life, he's been uh, born and he's, he's just getting started in his ministry, but the circumstances surrounding his birth fulfilled a whole lot of prophecy in the Old Testament. The circumstances surrounding his death are going to fulfill a whole lot of prophecy from the Old Testament. And when he returns, he's going to have finished fulfilling all the prophecy about him. And he is going to uh, eternally do away with sin and Satan and the power of darkness and evil in the world. And at that point, there will be no more need for the law because we will exist eternally in a sinless place with a holy and a righteous God. And it will pass away at that point, but it will have been entirely fulfilled. And right at the outset of his ministry here, after describing what a disciple of Jesus looks like, he goes ahead and he addresses this. And he says, you think I'm anti-law? You think I'm anti what's written in the Old Testament? You are wrong. I am the pinnacle in the consummation of everything that the Old Testament was about. It all points to me. It all finds its fulfillment in me. The answer to lawlessness is Jesus. Lawlessness today takes a particular form. It, it, it takes this image of someone who has placed their faith in Jesus and yet thinks, I don't even need to try to live up to the commands of Christ. He died on the cross for me. My sin has been forgiven. I can live however I want. And I, I want to make sure that we keep these things straight because when you put your faith in Jesus, all of your sins in the past and all of your sins in the future are absolutely forgiven. But that does not give you the license to just sin freely. That's not how that works. Think back to the Beatitudes. A person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness will be fulfilled thanks to the work of Jesus on their behalf. And his righteousness becomes yours. Do you remember what came after that? 
that you are merciful because you've experienced mercy. If you've truly experienced the mercy of Christ on your behalf, you cannot possibly allow yourself to just sin freely, kind of willy-nilly for the rest of your life as if God does not care. The answer to lawlessness is found in the righteousness of Jesus. It's been fulfilled by him. As believers, the ins and outs of the commands of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, should absolutely have a drastic impact on the way that we live. Their, Their bearing upon us ought to be a direct result of who we have become thanks to the work of Christ on our behalf. And so you sit there this morning and, and maybe you're, you've been here over the last three weeks and you're thinking to yourself, Tim, you've told us repeatedly that the, the Sermon on the Mount isn't this law to be followed, it's a character to be developed, and now I feel like you're misleading us. Hang on to that thought. We're going to get there in a minute. The next thing that Jesus addresses is legalism. Legalism would be the opposite of lawlessness. Legalism is the belief that you can obey your way into heaven. And in order to make this point, Jesus describes... Uh, scribes and Pharisees. So we need to kind of understand who they are. The scribes were professional students of the law, the law being the Old Testament. They gave all their time to studying and interpreting and teaching about what the law says. A Pharisee was a professional follower of the law. They gave all of their lives to just following the ins and outs of what the Old Testament says. In fact, there are 635 Old Testament laws. The easiest way to kind of think about a Pharisee is to think about a target. Picture a target in your head. Concentric circles working their way outward. Smallest one in the middle is the bullseye. A Pharisee would put the 635 commands of the Old Testament in the bullseye. And what they did was that they built thousands of laws around it to kind of buffer themselves from ever getting into there and breaking one of those commandments. Unfortunately, What happened is that they entirely missed the heart of the law by trying to so meticulously uphold the letter of the law. I'll give you an example because that's kind of abstract. And uh, this example involves two uh, children, one named Tim and one named Sarah, which happens to be my sister and I's name. Every other night or every other time the dishwasher runs, Tim and Sarah switch off unloading the dishwasher. Sarah is a good child. And she doesn't so much mind unloading the dishwasher. Tim feels differently. When it's Tim's turn to unload the dishwasher, he technically unloads the dishwasher, as in everything gets out of it. There's no guarantee that it all ends up in the right spot. There's certainly no guarantee that any dirty dishes get put into the dishwasher, and you better believe that nothing that might have been like sitting in the sink also clean is not going to get put away. The little silverware holder thing might be left on the counter because you didn't tell me to put anything back in the dishwasher. You just told me to unload it. The next night, or a couple nights later, Sarah's turn to unload the dishwasher. And she not only gets everything out of the dishwasher, but it's all stacked very neatly in the cabinets. And the little tines on the forks are lined up perfectly with the little forks here and the big forks here. And all the spoons are stacked nicely. And if there were dishes in the dishwasher that were dirty, they went back, our dishes in the sink, they went back into the dishwasher. 
And if there was something that was, had been cleaned in the sink and needed to be dried and put away, she did that. And she probably left a love note for her parents at the same time. <laughs> Pharisees are a whole lot like Tim. Yes, you accomplished the letter of the law, but you completely missed the heart of the Father. What Jesus is looking for is not someone legalistic like that. He's looking for someone who understands his heart, more like Sarah. Someone who understands that when mom and dad say unload the dishwasher, they're talking about something more than just the nuts and bolts of getting everything out of there. Legalism says, I can accomplish the letter of the law and therefore save myself. Jesus says, that's not what the law was ever intended for. So what you ended up with, with this, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, were these individuals who looked really, really good on the outside, but inside were totally dead. They were concerned about the external components of obeying the, the Old Testament law, but they totally missed any sort of heart connection to what the Lord might actually want from them in that process. Whereas Jesus makes it clear that God is concerned with the heart. Pharisees, someone wrapped up in legalism, is only concerned about the exterior. Listen to how Jesus would describe the Pharisees and scribes later in his ministry. He says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The scribes and the Pharisees, someone wrapped up in legalism, is the opposite of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are after someone who is poor in spirit, who mourns over their sin, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Someone wrapped up in legalism is proud of their ability to accomplish the law. They think they can stand confidently before the Lord instead of understanding that they are spiritually bankrupt before Him. They would want to celebrate their triumphs in righteous and holy living instead of mourning over the reality of their sin. God wants people who are the opposite, who are poor in spirit, and who are meek, and who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The reality, according to Jesus, is that the law was not given in order to save people. The law was given in order to point to our need to be saved. The law was not given in order to save, but to show our need to be saved. The scribes and Pharisees tried to take the law and make it accomplish a task it was never intended to accomplish. It cannot do that because you cannot save it perfectly. What you're going to see in the next 28 verses of Matthew chapter 5 are a list of things. Anger, murder, lust, and adultery. Keeping your word and being honest. Seeking retaliation from someone. And by the end of that, you ought to have a really good idea that you cannot accomplish that on your own. You cannot live up to it perfectly. And it should force you back to the Beatitudes. That's what the rest of chapter 5 
should be doing in our hearts. And Jesus says, your righteousness has got to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees because the heart of the Father is greater than the letter of the law. In all of their knowledge about the Old Testament and its laws, the scribes and the Pharisees completely missed the point because it was never supposed to find their, its fulfillment in a human being. It was supposed to find its fulfillment in Jesus and in Jesus alone. As with lawlessness, the answer to legalism is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. Legalism today um, casts a heavy weight on someone. The idea that maybe you've put your faith in Christ, but you think you've got to obey him perfectly in order for him to love you, or you think you've got to accomplish certain things in order to actually be saved, that can lead to incredible feelings of guilt and shame anytime you fail to live up to one of those laws. It can also do the opposite. I think legalism or a leaning toward legalism is what drives us to appear so judgmental before people who aren't believers, as if our behavior and our moral actions are somehow what have saved us and they make us better than other people. Jesus says the answer is not legalism. The answer is not following all of these laws and so therefore saving yourself. That's not how it works. In fact, your righteousness ought to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. For the 12 disciples sitting around Jesus when he says that, it would have been a shocking statement because no one was more holy than a scribe or a Pharisee. They knew the law better than anyone else and they kept it better than anyone else. So Jesus, how can you tell me that my my righteousness should surpass that, should be greater than that? You see, righteousness is a matter of heaven and hell. In order to arrive at that moment that that song talks about, a wondrous day when I shall see the face of him who ransomed me, I'll fall and worship at his feet and rise to reign eternally. That is a matter of righteousness. And you're either going to stand in that moment righteous and clean before the Father and uh, fall and worship at your feet and rise to reign eternally, or you're going to stand there unrighteous. And it's got nothing to do with your behavior and everything to do with Jesus. That he has done that on your behalf. That he didn't abolish the law and the prophets. He perfectly fulfilled them. And then he went to the cross and he died the death that we deserve to die. And he raised victoriously three days later so that if anybody puts their faith in him, they're no longer bound to the impossible standard of achieving the law in and of themselves. But instead they look to Christ and his righteousness is given to them. You see, Jesus says here that he demands a radical righteousness. Following Jesus demands something categorically different than what any scribe or Pharisee could have ever achieved. It's not just being greater than them or better than them at following the law. It's something totally different. It's something that relies on Jesus. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Matthew, says this, The sanctified living of a follower of Jesus ought to put to shame the holy striving of an Old Testament Pharisee. We should be radically righteous. And the only way to do that is through what? The answer is? The answer is Jesus. The answer to lawlessness is Jesus. The answer to legalism is Jesus. The answer to radical righteousness is Jesus. David Platt says it this way. What Jesus demands is not more righteous deeds by human effort, but more righteous hearts thanks to divine grace. We don't throw out the Old Testament or the New Testament or any piece of the law. Jesus didn't do that, and we should not do it either. 
But we understand that He has come to fulfill those. And so, while we don't just live wildly as if the commands of Christ don't matter to us, at the same time, we don't wear them as this yoke that weighs us down in order to achieve salvation on our own. The answer is right down the middle, and it's this righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The answer is found only in Jesus. He fulfilled the law, and He saved us by grace, and He has drawn us into the heart of the Father. We need to hold up the mirror here, so to speak, like we've been doing throughout this series, and we're going to need to keep it up throughout the rest of chapter 5. When you look into that mirror, what you ought to see is a heart that can humbly and honestly say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. What you ought to see is an image of a heart and life that looks increasingly like Jesus because you've been drawn into the heart of the Father. You can be sure of two things when you see the coming commands uh, through the rest of chapter 5. The first is that none of them come out of anything other than the character of God and the work of Jesus on the Christ. God doesn't just tell us to do things arbitrarily. They're drawn directly out of who he is and what he's done on our behalf. The second thing that you can guarantee is that obedience to those isn't something that you should have to achieve. It should be a byproduct of who you are. Our being affects our doing. And this passage, this four-verse chunk, is the pipe that connects those two things. It connects the character of the person in the Beatitudes to the actions of a person in the rest of chapter 5. Everything that comes in this section of the Sermon on the Mount is tied to those two truths. The radical righteousness that Christ is talking about is only possible because He's done the fulfilling work and He's drawing His followers into the heart of the Father. Anger, lust, divorce, honesty, retaliation, how we handle our enemies, all of those should be byproducts of who we are as followers of Jesus. All of those should be byproducts of the fact that our righteousness hinges on the work of Jesus and on nothing else. We're going to sing a song here as we close. Um, You can stand up. The song is Cornerstone, and the first words to this song are... Um, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That ought to be the heart of a follower of Jesus, that this radical righteousness is built on nothing more than Jesus and His fulfilling work on the cross. Let's sing. Let's sing.